Hey friends, before we dive into the episode, I've got something for healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals, if you're locuming or going to locum, navigating it through multiple agents and agencies can be stressful. Back and forth emails and timesheets aren't needed in this era. What if there was an app where you could see the shift, the total pay, the hours and request to book it there and then? Well there is. Locum's Nest connects healthcare professionals digitally to the NHS staff bank. The app connects already over 50,000 healthcare professionals to vacant work in over 50 NHS trusts and growing. Check it out yourself. That's Locum Nest. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another incredible guest. We have with us Dr. Neil Gupta, who is a consultant interventional radiologist at UHW, which also happens to be the place I did my foundation training. He's the West Midlands IR training director. He's involved in many other things and has also launched a logbook for trainees. We have so many cool and wonderful things we want to talk about. Uh, with you, Neil, but a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you today? Welcome to yeah, the show. thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. So um, just a bit of insight to the listeners. This this episode got rescheduled a few times today because Neil is on call, living the, the dream of an IR consultant, which we'll touch on in a moment. He had to quickly jump into theatres, which I think was quite exciting. Um, but Neil, we're going to take it all the way back. A young Neil, you know, looking to go into medical school, becoming a doctor. Tell us about that. Tell us the motivation to why you wanted to become a medic? I'm afraid I'm a very boring stereotype in the fact my dad's a doctor, mum's a nurse. Uh, my brother is three, four years older. He went to medical school at St. George's and uh, I mm. followed in the family footsteps and went to Imperial. Uh, so we, I'm uh, from Coventry originally, uh, but spread my wings and went out to Imperial uh, London for, the, for, for mm. medical school. Six years, absolutely loved it. But it wasn't really going to be for me long term. Um, so I made the decision to come back up to Coventry for uh, foundation school. I did my F1, F2 up mm. here, and then I got onto a run-through radiology training program. So back in the, it was the kind of early days of when run-through training was a big thing, and uh, mm. yeah, straight F1, two, and then straight into ST1 radiology. Uh, did my five oh. years of training in the West Midlands. Uh, so radiology training for, or interventional radiology training back then was only three years of core and two years of intervention. So I just did two years of interventional training, then I went off to Australia for a year and a half uh, for a couple of fellowships in IR. Uh, and then came back to uh, as a consultant in 2017. Mm. That was you gave a perfect intro, better than we did for for your later <laughs> career. So tell us about life at Imperial and why and how did you realise that Imperial London was a place to practice? Because you can imagine it's a busy, bubbling city and loads of people kind of dreaming working in London. Why do you want to move back to Coventry? So I think as a student, it's absolutely amazing, and as a young adult, it remains amazing. Um, I tended to see my senior colleagues who are graduating and starting foundation training. They didn't seem to get the same level of exposure to more the practical sides of things. Um, mm. And you know, there's a kind of a big queue. There's a lot of trainees in London, highly competitive training systems. So you're, there's always someone in front of you to, to do the stuff. Whereas I came up to the West Midlands and I was at a tiny GGH in rugby. Uh, and there was five house officers, five SHOs, and that was it. There were no consultants, nothing, no registrars. The consultant used to visit once a week for a ward round and you did everything. You know, you did chest drains, acidic drains, you did LPs, you did um, anything and everything uh, as a, you know, aspiration of joints, whatever, because there was no one else there. It was you and the SHO. They show you and it was literally show on, do one, teach one kind of thing. Whereas yeah. I had talked to my colleagues mm. in London and they were fighting over clinical stuff. So um, <laughs> I really enjoyed being peripherals. Yeah. 
And I'm glad you mentioned that. So obviously after kind of final medical school, people want to kind of work in a big, busy city and they get kind of disgruntled and upset that they didn't get shipped out to these places. You know, like me, initially I got to Coventry and I was thinking, oh, why on earth? You know, I was born and brought up in London. I want to be a surgeon. And then like you mentioned, what happened was it was a blessing in disguise because I was able to get into theatres. When able to, I was dragged by my consultant because there was no one else and needed help with like emergencies. Whereas like you mentioned in London, there's like five people waiting ahead of you just to hold a camera. But you get much better teaching in DGHs where they've got more time. Things are at a slower pace. Consultants have got more time. You know, consultants have got more time. Everything is just done at a different pace. And you kind of think, well, that sounds rubbish. I'm going to do three operations a day. I want to do eight. No, 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 no. You're better off doing three <laughs> and doing them than actually watching eight. And, that, and that's where I think the major discrepancy is between what we call teaching hospitals and what we call DGHs. I have to agree with that, too. I think whilst a medical student, my best teaching came when at, we were at peripheral hospitals. Um, I want to dive into a little bit uh, into your experience at Imperial. So Imperial is known, apparently, uh, don't quote me, to produce the most surgeons out there, right? General surgeons, I, I hear, and orthopods and all of that. Um, talk to us a little bit about your exposure to radiology and what sort of inspired you into that particular stream. Um, so my dad's a radiologist. Um, mm -hmm. but he's an old school radiologist. So he would go to work and he'd be home by two o'clock and he'd just shout down <laughs> the phone if anyone rang him out of hours. And I thought, well, that sounds like quite mm -hmm. a nice life. But obviously that was before CT and MR was even invented uh, and an in intervention mm -hmm. was in the foothills. So um, things are a bit different now. But um, I was the same. Yeah, yeah you're right. Imperial breeds a kind of surgical mentality. Um, I don't know why that is. I, I, I don't know. Maybe just they've got really good surgeons, really good surgical teachers, just inspiring mm. um, role models. Um, and certainly I, I spent um, I did my surgical training with Professor Aradazi, who's now Lord Sir Aradazi. Oh, um, wow. health minister. So I did my um, bachelor's under him as well. He was my supervisor, for my uh, integrated bachelor's degree in robotic surgery. And um, that was pretty cool. Mm. Um, so I think maybe the mentoring scheme is more surgically mentality. But. I think very quickly in foundation years, I realized that surgery isn't, wasn't, dash isn't the future. Um, mm. I tended to see surgeons becoming very subspecialized. So you mm. have the kind of, well, I think all medicine is like that, really. You know, the, the gastroenterologists look after the liver and, and the bowel and the, the respiratory guys just look after the lungs. And uh, surgeons are now very mm. subspecialized. You have orthopedic surgeons that just do elbow surgery, just do knee surgery. And liver surgeons who just do the left hemitectomy, whatever. So mm. I didn't like that aspect of surgery where you're very subspecialized and do a few procedures. Whereas in intervention, we do a massive array. Um, and mm. I guess we might come to that. <laughs> no, definitely. Amazing. Just taking a step back. So you went through med school, did foundation training, went into training pathway. And luckily for you, you had the exposure of a radiologist by virtue of your father. Problem is in med school and even foundation in the exposure radiologist, I'll tell you it is, you want to scan vetted and you're calling up the phone and you're even going to get shouted at and you're super nervous and intimidated and you don't get taught radiology like as a specialist at med school. What have you found or what would you recommend for students or juniors that are interested in the specialty to kind of access their get exposure? I think it's incredibly difficult, actually, um, for medical schools to try and shoehorn in radiology. The medical school curriculum is so incredibly um, uh, busy um, that to try mm. and something would have to be pushed out to push in radiology. 
ultimately radiology is the kind of fundamental building block of most specialties. Um, and, and you can almost mm. change the way the curriculum is taught, though it's radiologically focused. So, for example, in Warwick, they changed the way anatomy ta was taught to almost like to, to um, radiological anatomy. So you'd have CT scans and MRI scans of um, the body. And that's where you learn your anatomy for, as opposed to the olden days where you'd have uh, dissection and fascinated models mm. and things. Um, but it takes a huge amount of effort and educational resource to change that mentality and mindset. Um, so I kind mm. of get that. And also a very tiny proportion of people become radiologists. You know, mm. lots of people become GPs. So I understand yeah. that that's where they have to put their resource into. Um, but you could argue the same as pathology, uh, maybe dermatology, maybe the kind of what we would traditionally look at as the little known specialties. We can't shoehorn them all into the curriculum. So unfortunately, it just does come down to people you bump into um, and then just getting an enthusiasm for it and finding someone who's passionate mm. from my end from the training end to enthuse you and give you the time of day to actually come and spend some time with us so w when i started yeah. a consultant five six years ago we would have a taste a week a person i don't know five or six times a year now every mm. single week i have a taste a week person and it's down to people Amazing. like you the ir juniors to bsirt to enthusiastic people like med med societies rad socks all that sort of stuff yeah that, kind of put those links in and then people like me that facilitate the taster weeks and just so many people now wanting taster weeks mm. and and all that so it's, it's brilliant and we're getting there slowly with the kind of advertising yeah. and awareness of radiology and ir let's let's talk a, a little Definitely. bit about about that now so in terms of radiology it has actually become very very popular now we're seeing more and more of our friends and colleagues who all said i'm going to become an orthopod a general surgeon and they're all now radiology trainees Tell us a little bit about the the great sort of uh, points of becoming a radiologist and then IR as well. So walk us through what are some of the greatest things about a career in radiology? Um, um, so there's that, they're, they're two very different things, radiology and IR, I probably should say. Um, and I'm very much not a radiologist. Um, I just purely do IR now. But the, the kind of the massive draw of, of radiology is the um i don't want to say the absence of clinical responsibility but the it's it's very much a finite working day and your responsibility is finite as well i think the real difficulty in in the traditional medical and surgical specialties is the huge amount of responsibility that patient ownership comes with and that goes from admission to discharge but then also follow up and um the, the social aspects you know getting the patients home and and treating them as a in a very holistic manner the kind of the nice bit about radiology if, if that's the right way of phrasing it is that you get to see fantastic pathology and be the detective and figure out what's wrong with somebody and then you almost don't need to then do the nitty-gritty prescribing the antibiotics for the lung abscess or giving the heparin for the uh, for the sorry clexane for the pe that you just diagnosed and you kind of see the clinical history delivered to you by you guys who come down with your begging bowl you give us a clinical history we then do the scan and we get instant gratification go, you're an idiot, it was not a PE. Or, oh, that was a fantastic clinical history, yes, it's a PE. So we instantly see the kind of clinical history condensed, the, the, the scan that tells us whether you're right or wrong, and then that makes us actually really, really good clinicians because we get 100 house officers coming down with a CTPA request and we see exactly one, which ones are positive. So we know that the five people that were positive, those five house officers, and you go, yeah, that one gave a classic history of a PE. And those 95 other people get rubbish histories of PE. And funny enough, they don't have a PE. 
you actually reinforce your clinical diagnostic skills very quickly as a radiologist. And unfortunately, nobody else knows that. So your, your, your consultants on the wards just go, oh, bloody radiologist said no again. Yeah, we said no because we, we know it's not a PE because we've seen hundreds of requests and we've seen every single one which is positive and negative and we know and we've you know we've, we've filtered them so it's a bit like someone walking into the room query dvt and you know from the end of the bed it's not a dvt because you can't have bilateral pitting edema leg swelling and have a pe it just doesn't happen but you have to exclude dvt so we do the scan and we and we just then go yeah oh we were right so we actually are really good diagnosticians um, but we don't then have to take the clinical guff <laughs> i don't know a nice way of saying that um and it's very much you leave at five o'clock you've done your hard work and then um often most hospitals have registrars overnight or even they outsource it now so you do you can get to leave and have a finite day which you know people want that work-life balance and um, so walk us through so, now so as far as i'm aware you have to do the core radiology bit and then move into ir am i correct with that so radiology training is three years of core radiology st one to three and then you choose what subspecialty you want to do. So you can do mm. breast or gynae or GU or um, nuclear med or whatever, musculoskeletal trauma, whatever. And that's an additional two years of subspecialty training. If you want to do IR, it's three years of additional subspecialty training. So it's what we call a three mm. plus three model as opposed to the three plus two model. Um, you kind of have to do all the nitty gritty that all the radiologists do. So CT, MR, ultrasound, understand all the different specialties, ups and gynae, pediatrics, breasts and everything. And then you mm -hmm. can then open the gateway to IR. A lot of people find that very frustrating because they're kind of like, mm -hmm. well, I'm never going to look at a mammogram again. I'm never going to look do a pediatric, you know, micturating cystogram. But it's kind of a rite of passage, yeah. just like medical school, just like foundation training. You do a lot of stuff that you <laughs> mm -hmm. may not ever do again, but you just have to do it. And it gives you the fundamental building blocks of understanding CTMR, 3D manipulation, understand the radiation and the manipulation of imaging, all that sort of stuff. So it's, it is paramount. And it makes us better IRs. You can't be a good IR if you're not initially a good radiologist. Um, mm. and, but the IR is very different. Uh, you go back to being no. a clinician in, the, in, in more, of, more of a true sense of the word, not anywhere near like surgeons and medics who have absolute clinical responsibility. And as I said about imaging and discharge and mm. all that clinical responsibility about family, just discussion with families and, and, and TTOs or de-discharge letters. Um, so you kind of in a way get the good bits which is the technical operations <laughs> without having to deal with all the um looking after the house officers and um the social family problems of the patients and the nurses on the ward having to get the physios to come and do the assessments and that. so you kind of get the fun bit without the without the ward work in a way mm -hmm. so i can see um why it's super popular and why all our friends have all gone down the radiology route do you mind telling us the distinction for benefit of the listeners between a radiologist and an interventional radiologist? Because the term is thrown around and I don't think people really know what the difference is. Annoyingly, there isn't a, uh, a, a, a easy di differentiation and that's why. So you'll have radiologists who do interventions and you'll have interventional radiologists who do diagnostic reporting. And increasingly so now, we are starting to see more separation. So, but mm. if you look at a traditional DGH, they, they don't normally have dedicated IRs, but they'll have radiologists who do do nephrostomies or PTCs, or even an angioplasty or a rig or something in a relatively straightforward. Mm. Um, whereas if you work in a teaching hospital, I know we've come back to that phrase again, 
you'll generally have interventional radiologists who, who have the full skill set to do all the different types of interventions. Mm. And what you'll find is in the teaching hospitals, the IRs do less diagnostic reporting. Um, so I'm an exception to the rule because I'm a thoroughbred IR. So I do almost no reporting. I'm, I'm not really a radiologist anymore. I haven't done any diagnostic reporting for seven, eight years now. Oh, wow. Whereas most of my colleagues actually are both. So they try to find a happy medium between, let's say, doing two days of IR and two days of DR. Whereas mm. I just do four days of IR. I don't do I don't do any diagnostics anymore. Um, so mm. there's a lot of crossover and people struggle with their identity. identity um, and it, it depends who you're talking to as to what you introduce yourself as. Uh, yeah. so mm. I say I'm an interventional radiologist because that's all I do. But many of my colleagues, if they're talking to a, another person, they might say I'm a clinical radiologist or a diagnostic radiologist. And if they're talking to a surgeon, they'll say I'm an interventional radiologist. So it's an interchangeable terminology, unfortunately. No, definitely. And I think a good way to put this into context is the example of today. So tell us what happened today when you're on call and you got that call where you had to go to theatres. And I think that will probably give a better insight into what your role is as a consultant, IR, um, radiologist. Yeah, so so um, I was I was just doing a kidney biopsy, a routine kidney biopsy uh, this afternoon. Um, and... Uh, the surgeons were doing a liver resection and they, they called me down and they were struggling to mobilize the liver to free up a tumor, basically, uh, to resect mm. it. And uh, they asked me to go up and demonstrate where the tumor was exactly with the ultrasound probe, which is obviously a diagnostic radiologist could do that. But mm. then on top of that, they wanted me to ablate it. So because they were not able to free up the liver adequately to resect it safely, that uh, I popped a needle into the liver, uh, a microwave needle, and I heated the tip of the needle up uh, very, very hot with microwave energy and burnt the tumour in situ. So rather than the surgeons having to mobilise the liver and chop it out, I just percutaneously, well, it's not percutaneously, interoperatively burnt the liver tumour without having to, um, to 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 resect it. So it makes their life a heck of a lot easier. Uh, so that, that was something I just did this afternoon. Yeah, I think, I think that's incredible. And like, I don't know, I got a buzz out of reading that email. <laughs> it, just, it feels exciting in the field. But the, the follow-on question is, is, there's always these talks of the IR guys are coming in and taking the surgeon's work, right? So, so tell us a bit about that. And, you know, where does the, the distinction happen where it's an IR role or a surgeon's or is there a lot of gray area and it, over time it gets kind of delineated? Yeah, there is a gray area. It comes down to availability of resource and experience and expertise. So if there's a if there's a procedure that needs doing and someone's not doing it then other people will come in to fill that gap so for example mm. even in Coventry where i work our um uh, previous interventional radiologists didn't really do many lines so the uh the, a line service was developed by the anesthetists to do pit lines hickman lines barred lines all that sort of stuff whereas at mm. most hospitals interventional radiologists do all the lines Mm. Similarly, um, renal, the renal team do our dialysis lines, whereas, again, most hospitals, the IRs do it. So they kind of if you don't offer a service or a good service, particularly, then other people come in and do it. So mm. if if we look at um, things like vascular surgery, um, traditionally, interventional radiologists did EVARs, they did, did all EVARs. They were always delivered by IRs. What we found is that there's not really enough IRs delivering um, EVAR. So the vascular surgeons came in and said, we're going to start doing these um, to offer a better service to patients. So now many centres, the vascular surgeons are delivering the EVARs. Um, mm. So it's kind of a, if where there's a space in the market, so to speak, someone will fill mm. that. So um, the ablation I just did, 
for example, my surgeons would always call me and ask me to do it. Whereas I know down the road, um, there are some surgeons that would do it themselves. They would just get the kit, put it into the liver and, and burn the tumor. Oh, wow. um, so they've kind of taught themselves the skill to be able to do that procedure themselves um, because there's mm. been a gap in the market. There's not been an interventional there to help. So they've had to learn. So similarly, the nef- that was just uh, just two seconds ago, uh, another interruption uh, from a um, nephrologist, sorry, from a urologist. He's got a staghorn kidney. So the kidney's obstructed. Um, and some of the nef- uh, urologists will stick a tube into a kidney through the skin, a nephrostomy, um, whereas most won't. So some of them have to teach themselves that because they haven't had good interventional radiology colleagues who have done it for them. Whereas now mm. they all come to us. So we will do all the nephrostomies. So it kind of comes from the gaps in the market as to where the surgeons kind of fill those voids. Um, mm. the, the reason that IR is so uh, popular in, 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 in UK is, is because we're all paid the same amount of money, whatever work you do. Whereas if mm. you work in a monetized system where, radio, where consultants sorry, get paid for what they do, then there's an incentive for surgeons to do everything themselves. True. You know, yeah. Why would you send any patient to another specialty if you could get paid to do surgery? Mm. Um, so the kind of classic examples of that are things like fibroid embolization. So mm. there's lots of court cases in America where gynecologists have done hysterectomies on, on, on patients with fibroids. And then the patients found out that they could have had an embolization procedure and they've sued oh, wow. the gynecologist. Um, in, in this country, the gynecologists are so overwhelmed with patients, <laughs> they're happily sending them to interventional radiology because it means mm. that their patient can have the right treatment, an embolization procedure under sedation, home the next day, rather than a major hysterectomy operation with six weeks recovery, you know, three days in hospital. So mm. it's kind of a no-brainer clinically. But if you're a gynecologist in America, yeah. you kind of want to do the hysterectomy. Yeah. <laughs> For our junior listeners, right, so... Uh, a few years ago, I heard someone say, IR is going to take over everything, right? Now that you've said that, I'm just thinking now, does this bode well for the future? If you're a, say you're a, a budding radiologist going to become an interventional radiologist, if general surgeons and other surgeons are picking up these skills, is the career foolproof? Or would you say, you know what, IR is going to boom, especially with the innovations that we're seeing, which we'll go into in a little bit. Um, but yeah, what's your what's your forecast on the future? That's a brilliant, brilliant question. Um, so a few years ago at the BSIR, the British Society of Inter- Interventional Radiology, there was a vote to say whether IR should become an independent specialty. Uh, and that was overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly supported by 80 percent of, of respondents. And that is because there is a fear that, as you just said, if anyone can do what we do and if all the specialties mm. start to cherry pick, the little bits of IR that we do, then we will be left with nothing. That mm. is probably more of a potential in other countries, in my opinion, because of the financial model that I've just explained. I think mm. in in the UK, we're more protected from that because of the lack of monetization of healthcare, um, yep. and also a general respect. Um, mm. Surgeons like doing surgery, um, <laughs> and so they're happy to send us the non-surgery, if that makes sense. Mm. So there does seem to be a, an understanding that that's we're, it's better in our hands. And a lot yeah. of the things we do in interventional radiology are not a generic skill set, but it's guiding a needle into an um, organ, whether it be a blood vessel mm. or a liver or a kidney or a stomach or whatever, wiggling a wire through it, wiggling a catheter over the wire, and then magic comes out the end of the catheter. 
So actually, mm. a lot of the things we do, whether we're guiding ourselves through the cystic duct and then in through the CBD into the duodenum, whether we're guiding ourselves through the collecting system down the ureter into the bladder, whether we're guiding ourselves up from the common femoral artery up into the liver, into the, into the um, hepatic artery, whether we're going to the spleen, wherever we're going, that skill set is actually relatively generic. It, it, it's, it's guiding a catheter and wire under x-ray guidance. So mm. there is an element of respect that the surgeons realize it's not really their realm and their remit and their understanding. So they're happy doing surgery and we're happy doing intervention. And um, mm. I don't think that's ever realistically going to change, but yep. there is a potential for some procedures. So as I just mentioned, EVAR to go mm. to vascular surgeons, ablation could potentially go to the HPV surgeons. Um, but it's very much a generational thing as well. So as the young new surgeons come in, it depends on what they want to do with their careers. And actually, if they're interested in doing that, because actually the people that chose to do surgery like doing surgery and what we yeah. do isn't traditional surgery. No, definitely. Absolutely. I can hear the, the sigh of relief. I'm going to follow on Amzi's question, piggyback off it. And to make things worse, with all these innovation in terms of kind of AI, machine learning, and kind of, you know, the, these platforms picking up cancer diagnosis quicker and in farther depth than radiologists. Tell us about your experience with it. Has Coventry started to kind of implement these things? Um, tell us a bit about that world. So we do use AI in radiology, not in interventional radiology. So um, that's probably the easiest way of splitting that at the moment. There is no real AI in IR. Um, not really i mean there's, there's trials and things going on but it's not it's really in the foothills and i don't think it's realistically going to happen uh, for, mm. for, for, for a long time whereas i ai in diagnostic radiology is coming um in in force and fast we already use it for our lungs cancer screening so um i i can't remember off the top of my head my the exact stats but a lot of people um i can't remember the age range but there's people in there let's say 50s to 70s i can't remember the age range having a low dose HRCT to pick up early lung cancers. Um, mm. And the they get plugged through an AI computer, which picks up anything abnormal on the scan. And that gets basically reported. So the, the AI will say there's a two centimeter lump in the left upper quadrant or whatever, left, left upper lobe. But it always then goes to a radiologist to say yay or nay. Okay. And say, oh no, that's just an artifact, or that's just a granuloma, or that's just nothing. Um, yeah. But the AI learns every single time that lots of radiologists have told it. And it learns yeah. each time very, very quickly. And it's really, really good. Um, but it's still not good enough at differentiating a tumor from a granuloma, from a, um, I don't know, infarct, whatever. And you yeah. still need the human. But it will get there. But I don't think it will ever take away radiologists. Because just as mm. we've introduced radiographers, reporting radiographers for all our X, well, not all, but most of our X-rays, Sonographers do most of our ultrasound now. Um, and actually, there are plenty of reporting radiographers that do CTs now. Mm. But the consultant role, or sorry, the red doctor role, if you want to call it that, mm. is a very specific one. And actually, if we cut out all the kind of normal junk, if I want to call it that, so the 95 house officers that came down for the CTPAs that load rubbish, if a computer <laughs> could say, load of rubbish, and I just look at the five abnormals, and I tell you exactly what the problem is. So similarly, when we do mm. 10,000 chest x-rays in a week, Mm. It'd be nice to know which one of those look a bit dodgy because I don't need mm. to look at 9,980 9, of them, which are completely blooming normal. I quite like to look mm. at those 20 that the computer goes, what's that? Or to prioritize the dodgy ones um, yeah. and kind of, yeah, you know, because you've got 10,000, there'll definitely be 100 cancers in there. But which, where mm. are those 100 mm. cancers? Computers tell me, look at those ones first. They're, they look a bit weird. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. We'll pick up a lot quicker. 
because it takes a long time to report 10,000 x-rays. And if you're at the bottom of the pile, that poor patient's at the bottom of the pile, they should have had to wait mm. six weeks for their report. They could have got it reported mm. today if a computer told us that that was looking a bit dodgy. So that's where I think AI will come in and it'll be a massive uh, favour, but it won't put radiologists out of a job. So there, there you go, another sigh of relief. But no, I do see it helping the workflow and making things because some of the stuff they're doing is even the experimental stuff is, is crazy. Like you can just see like how much of an impact um, it would have. Um, taking kind of a step back and moving into a different role you do, Neil, is you're the program director. And that itself has its own skills and attributes that you need. Tell us a bit more about that role and what skills did you have to learn to kind of look after a bunch of trainees? And as you can imagine, the, the sentiment amongst trainees, I don't know how it is in radiology, isn't the best at the moment in the NHS. So tell us how you deal with that, the difficulties of trainees, kind of the empathy, the sympathy from point of view. I, I, I think it's, it's I think I'm, I'm still, I think I'm young. I'm not young compared to you guys, but I've, <laughs> I've been a consultant for what, six years, five and a half years now. So I, I still think I'm relatively close mm. to training to understand what it's like. Um, I think it's just being empathetic, really. It's, it's the kind of jobs mm. of a duty as a doctor. It's the kind of simple stuff that we learn in comm school, communication yeah. skills in first year medical school. Um, it's just remembering that we're all humans mm. um, and we're not just machines and everyone's yeah. got personal lives and actually your know, personal life does affect your work. Of course it does. And, it, and it's recognising the stresses that we all have and that how it impacts on our work. So um i think we are lucky in radio in radiology because it you, you most registrars most of the time are supernumerary so particularly mm -hmm. in the day everything is run by the consultants and the registrars are almost there in a supportive capacity massively um, helpful but actually supportive so out of hours they are you know they run the show the registrars and they you know the whole system would fall apart if they weren't there but in hours they are really there to be educated so there's a kind of an agreement in, in, in a way that we spend all our time teaching them in hours and spending time, you know, helping them blossom. And actually out of hours, they run the hospital. Mm. Um, so there's kind of that <laughs> unwritten rule. Whereas I think in the other specialties like medicine and surgery, you work your bum off all day in hours and then you have to do all that again out of hours. And where does the training fit? <laughs> and I think it's really difficult because someone has to do those those menial tasks. Now, to be fair, we have lot, got a lot more clinical nurse specialists and physicians associates and all these kind of other people people that have come mm. in hospital at night to try and help the menial tasks like cannulas and bloods and that sort of stuff um so it, mm. it's meant to help but i think ultimately and fundamentally you still have need to have a workforce issue in in, the, in medical and surgical practice where you poor guys are having to do all the grunt work and then train mm. and learn and then do it all out of hours as well so i think that's another rationale behind people wanting to do radiology where you really are taught a lot um, yeah not spoon fed but you spend a huge amount and it's pretty much an apprenticeship still you mm -hmm. kind of sit, sit with the consultant next to them whilst they report a ct you see how they do it you understand it you go away and you can report some and then you bring it back to them but it's always the consultant who verifies and authorizes it so you're never really acting independently until you yeah. pass through exams and you start to do stuff independently but the first three or four years are really quite handheld and um and and supportive so i think that's we we're very lucky in radiology that we have that um, yeah. So it's quite easy being a TPD in, in radiology, <laughs> and 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 I'm, I'm the IR TPD for the West Midlands, so I I just well I, I do look after DRs as well, but mainly IRs, mm. um, and they are a, a group that have chosen to do IR, 
Um, so they're a very enthusiastic, motivated group um, because if they didn't want to be there, they could just choose to do DR and have an easy life, um, yeah. do a nine to five. They wouldn't have to be coming in at uh, four o'clock in the morning last night, my colleague oh, wow. was in, uh, doing a, a traumatic uh, subclavian artery uh, dissection. Um, oh. So um, I, c- I can't remember. Oh, it's a, yeah, it was a road traffic accident and uh, young patients blocked off the entire blood supply to the right arm. So um, went in and stented oh, the subclavian artery and got the blood flow back to the heart, arm. Um, now, I'm, I didn't know whether to say that because it's not actually very common that we're in at four o'clock in the morning. I think the problem yeah. is when you are, you sensationalize it to an extent. You want everyone to know. Yeah. And you tell everyone, yeah. oh, isn't it four o'clock in the morning? You're still playing and it's like <laughs> a cool thing. So you, don't, you, know, you don't talk about it. Oh, I didn't get a call last night. That was nice on call. So <laughs> 99 yeah. times out of that, you don't come in. But when you do, you make sure everyone knows about it. i can imagine that kind of follows on to the question what is kind of the day-to-day life for a interventional radiologist or a consultant just to kind of get that insight yeah so again it's it differs where you are who you are and what you want to do so if you know as i've said two of my well some of my colleagues are drir so they'll spend two days doing diagnostic reporting going to mdt meetings um uh, yeah, and then they'll spend the other two days doing I what we you know IR. They might do a clinic. Um, they might mm. do they'll do an IR theatre list. They might do an interventional ultrasound list. They might do some CT biopsies and drains. Um, I have an ablation list, so every other week I have um, a CT scanner and an anaesthetist. I put my patients to sleep and I burn all their kidney and lung uh, kidney lung and um, liver tumours. Mm. Um, so it's really different and where you work and what you want to do. Um, so, but me as a thoroughbred IR, I have um, an all day, th- Tuesday, pretty much IR all day, Thursday, pretty much IR all day. Friday morning is my MDT, uh, is my clinic where I see mm. all my outpatient clinics. Um, Friday afternoon is my vascular MDT. And mm. then Wednesday is my ablations in the morning and then admin in the afternoon. So, um, and then in between all of that, I fit in my TPD role. I fit in <laughs> my um, mm. academy lead role. And I fit in being a BSIR chairperson for the membership rewards committee. So um, I don't know where I find those that, that time. and just kind of squeeze it in out of hours. <laughs> so now um, give you a little bit of feedback from the colleagues that I've been speaking to, our ST1s and 2s, essentially. Um, I, asked, I asked them, so how's training going? Um, and compared to the IMTs, for example, they did all turn around and say, you know what? We love our consultants. They genuinely take the time out to read our reports, train us and teach us. And I feel like I'm actually in a training program. Um, so it makes sense with how all, everything you've said, they genuinely feel like that. Whereas when you speak to the IMTs, they're often overburdened, overworked. They've got a million responsibilities. And just because of the service, I think the consultants find it hard to fit in that training as well. Um, so yeah, just some feedback. Radiology is doing well, I guess, because of the way it's structured as well. Um, in between all of that, so you're doing IR, very busy, uh, you're coming in for procedures, including the 4am ones. Um, tell us a little bit outside of those two roles that you've just talked about. What do you do? What other things do you get up to, um, including sort of downtime? How do you, what's work-life balance to you? Uh, it's just family. Um, mm. I'm very lucky my wife doesn't work. She was, she was a nurse when we met uh, 15 years ago. Uh, my mm-hmm. first house officer job in rugby. Uh, and married the first nurse I bumped into, um, <laughs> but it just didn't work with the family. So 
we've got an 11 year old and a four year old and it didn't it didn't work um mm. with her doing shifts and, and me doing ir so she doesn't work anymore um and mm. i'm very very fortunate because it means that i can spend as much time as i need to in my career um and and she and she she looks after the kids um I, I, but I, but I, I don't really have much of a life other than family um it's you know i work i work hard when <clears> i'm <throat> here I'm 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 pretty militant. I will I will leave by five o'clock. Um, I very very rarely stay past five o'clock. Um, I love that. And I'm I'm in about half eight, so it's not not stupid o'clock, and it's not. Uh, and then uh, on a Monday is my uh, SPA day, so my uh, kind of admin SPA day. So again, I'll do that uh, on a Monday. So I don't come mm. into work, but I get that day at home to catch up with paperwork and do that sort of stuff. So my work working week is quite finite. It's eight thirty till five. Um, and then really it's, you know, sorting the kids out, um, going to the park, the usual stuff. But I don't actually have any hobbies. I used to play um, uh, hockey and I used to do golf and things like that. But um, I do go out with the lads and um, holidays and things. But my, it's mainly just chilling out with the kids. Yeah, we've, we're, I've just got a, a 14-month-year-old. And so I can appreciate how much time that now <laughs> takes up. So, um, yeah, that's another full-time job, by the way. So, yeah. <laughs> and I try to support my wife because it, it can be mind-numbingly boring. Not boring, that's the wrong word. But mind-numbing, looking after yeah. the children all the time and not having out of conversation and stuff. So um, mm. if I can look after them and let her have a bit of respite, then I appreciate that. Absolutely. Definitely. Going back to what you said, that you're you're quite on it when it comes to leaving work on time at 5 p.m. And obviously, it's something that's encouraged. And yet, you see trainees across specialties always staying back, you know, thinking it's going to get them brownie points, you know, that fear, that anxiety. How did you kind of implement this into your career? And what advice would you give? Because we know how detrimental it is staying back hours and hours after, you know, you're supposed to finish. It's a, it's a culture um, so as I said, I went, to, I went to Australia for a year and a half and the culture there is completely different, which is why everyone's leaving in droves. Um, but <laughs> it's, um, first of all, they all work a four day week uh, at consultant level. Nobody works more than four days a week. When I came back to Coventry and I said, I want a four day week, they thought I was mental. They were like, what do you mean? We all work five <laughs> days a week. And I was like, no, 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 no. You can do your full time job in four days. If you extend your working day or you do some working at home, things like your admin session can be done out of hours, all that sort of stuff. And they were like, wow, that's really clever. And so all the consultants said, oh, no, 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 it's not for me, not for me. And then within a few months, every single consultant was on a four-day week. And they said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So I kind of changed the culture here when I when I got back about working. And mm. um, and again, the culture here was you stayed late when you were the IR, the acute IR. They would always yeah. stay till 7, 8 o'clock. And I was like, no, that, that's not, we're not doing that anymore. If you work mm. hard in the day, you shouldn't need it to run over. And if you looked at the consultants that stayed late, they, they would often come in, faff about, let's say, and they wouldn't start the theatre list till late, let's say mm. 11 o'clock or whatever. And so understandably, it would run 11 till 7. You're like, well, it's really obvious. Just start at 9 and finish at mm. 5. It's the same number of eight hours. Just stop to but because they couldn't get the theatre patients into theatre because they weren't ready on the wards, because um, that mindset had set in, oh, no one ever turns up till, you know, 10. So what's the point in getting the patient? Mm. Whereas I was like, no, I want the patient on the table at nine and I'm leaving at five. So I did, did <laughs> Love the same it. amount of work as my colleagues, but in the mm. proper working hours. Yeah. And that just started to rub off on everyone. And they were like, oh, yeah. So when I turn up at half eight, the patients are ready. The first patient is ready. Nice. Um, and so we are on the table and operating at nine o'clock and we finish by about four, four thirty, finish up reporting and I leave, walk out the door at five. 
and that mindset is now stuck with the nurses and everybody and they understand that that's how i operate and they they they, they, mm. they run it as that definitely and i think it's so yeah. important and i think it's culture and it just takes one person to kind of initiate it act on it where you say you expect yeah. it to be there for the pre-ward round whatever the hell that is at yeah. <laughs> expect it to stay till the end to make and it's just it's it's a bit of a nonsense really if you you change that culture and say no this is how we do it boom 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 you get the patients done and i'll let you go so like the nurses there's no incentive for them to get through the patients if they know they're staying till seven o'clock anyway but you're like no we yeah, get this yeah. done and we all leave it like, oh, okay and they buy into that culture no mm. definitely um, i want to touch on this as well and i think it'd be quite interesting for a lot of uh, the listeners is tell us about this this journey to australia working there for a few years some people go, they never come back. You've managed to come back. Um, t tell us, you know, I can imagine why people, are, you know, like you mentioned, drugs going out there, but tell us why it's so popular. Why is it so, you know, appealing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I wanted to go to Australia from medical school um, and obviously you have to do foundation one year. And I did my foundation year and met my wife, my now wife. And I said to her, oh, can we yeah. go to Australia? And she's like, well, we've only just been going out like a month. Can we just hold off a bit? <laughs> and then I was there for two. And then I got into run-through radiology. And I was kind of like, oh, God, okay. I've just literally been given a run-through radiology training program. I really can't just turn that down and bug off to Australia. So I kind of put that on hold. But I said to my wife, promise me when I finish my training, we can go to Australia. So she did give me that promise. So I finished my uh, CCT. I had got a job here as a consultant already. So I interviewed in my uh, final year, FT5 year, and got a consultant job here. And then I said, by the way, I'm bugging off to Australia for a year. And they were exactly of your opinion. Like, oh, you're not going to come back. Like, oh, we've just given you a consultant <laughs> job. And uh, I, was like, I don't care. I'm going. So yeah. we packed up our house, uh, put it all into boxes, uh, rented it, sold one of our cars. And were pretty much kind of very open to the idea of staying in Australia. Mm. Uh, went there, lived in a massive house with a pool on the beach. Oh, man. Uh, lifestyle was off the scale. <laughs> Um, my salary was double my consultant salary. So my fellowship salary was double my consultant salary. I mean, it was just obscene <laughs> amounts of money I was earning. Um, it, as I said, the culture is you, it's, it's kind of like an eight till four day. Um, mm. so you start early, finish early, get home and go for a surf, whatever, or swim, jump in the jacuzzi. I mean, it's mental. Um, and that, the first year was absolutely incredible. And I, I, I extended my fellowship by another year. And I applied to stay. So I applied to the Royal College of uh, Radiologists in Australia to mm. do their, you know, local, um, what do you call it? Um, where they assess you to see whether you're equivalent to their trainees locally. Annoyingly, they don't accept the FRCR UK exam. So if I wanted to stay, I would have had to do the local Franska exam, the local radiology mm. exam. I'm not very good at exams <laughs> and I wasn't a very good radiologist. I'm a really bloody good interventional mm. radiologist, but I didn't really like radiology that much. Um, mm -hmm. And I couldn't put myself to the exam. And also after a year, we started to get a little bit bored. Um, you're really isolated. It's really far from anywhere. Yep. You know, four, mm. I was in Perth, four hours to Sydney, four hours to Bali, seven hours to South Africa. That's it. There's nothing else around you. Massively mm. isolated, uh, not seeing my family. Um, and culturally, it's just different. Um, they're quite insular. They, they don't really care about the rest of the world because it doesn't really affect them. Mm. Um, and we just found little things started to tease us and think, yeah, this is probably, I could stay there for five or six years, probably very happily and a hell of a lot of money, but we didn't mm. see it as a, a long-term solution. So, you know, grandparents back here and all that sort of stuff, we, it, we knew it wasn't going to be a forever thing. And we mm. thought, well, what's the point in having five or six years and then coming back to the UK? We may as well come back to the UK and make roots and, and properly. So, um, 
this main thing was I did not want to do the exam. And the second wall was kind of cultural distance um, and the, the, the classic things I imagine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, while you're young and, and, and uh, energetic and all that, that's the best time. And if you do your training out there, it's kind of a no brainer. So I'm afraid I am advertising people to leave the NHS. I, <laughs> I missed the boat. Maybe. Um, because it's just, yeah, yeah, unfortunately, it's just better. The working conditions are really good. Mm. Um, but it's really, really far. And there's a lot of downsides as well. And and the problem is when it's a bit like anything, the honeymoon period is about a year. Um, yep. And you, you amazing for a year. But after that, it starts to wear thin. And you think, mm, the things that I love about the UK um, and you, you miss those little things and family and friends and history and culture and Europe on your doorstep and yeah. all that mm. stuff that um, you can read on any website. But it does become real. Um, yeah, that's what I'd say. No, definitely. And I think you're right. As in, most people we speak to, they do like two, three years and then they kind of fly back. And it's not the lifestyle. It's not the money. It's the little stuff, kind of family, friends, UK, London, as miserable as the weather is, people do tend to miss it. And I yeah. think it's difficult mm. when you're kind of born and brought up in a place like Europe, UK, um, people do miss it and tend to come back. The other question I had, and I wanted to ask before, and it's completely off a different tangent. When working in IR, you're kind of exposed to all of this radiation. You, I imagine you have to wear the lead things. I recently heard that, you know, there's this anxiety and concern that is it safe? Is it healthy? despite all the protective measures there is still exposure right um, how do you feel about that do you worry about the future um no in, in a nutshell in st1 radiology you get a lot of radiation protection training and, and education and understanding about radio, how it works and what it is and what it does and all that sort of stuff and i think if you take it seriously at that stage and understand it robustly um then you it, the, the amount that we get is really small uh, okay. when you can mm. contextualize it to doing an international flight or whatever or living in cornwall they always say because there's, there's <laughs> radon in the rocks um it, it's really not of, ma of major consequence and particularly if you are someone who does let's say two days a week of ir it's not mm. it, it, you're not in there every single day radiating yourself and if you do take the simple measures like as you say wearing the lead apron i've got my lead glasses here uh, that mm. um that are lead lined um, and I've got lots of monitoring. So I've got a ring that monitors my radiation dosing. I've got a, um, a monitor on my glasses. And I've also got mm -hmm. a, a body monitor as well. So I'm constantly being monitored on my radiation levels and, and we get audited every single month and we get a feedback on, on what I've, I've never in mm. my entire career ever exceeded a, a dose. So there's very strict doses and legal um, constraints. And if you ever breach one, mm. you basically have an investigation to understand why you breached it. So okay. all of, I think all of my colleagues have breached over the last few years. I've never breached. And I just, because I okay. take it seriously, little things that you learn about, like coning, so reducing the amount of x-ray, not pressing the foot pedal all the time, taking a step back when you do an angiogram, all that sort of stuff, the little, little tiny things that you learn in training. Mm. Um, it's, just, it's just negligible. Um, so I think if we look at some operators that do get doses, it's nearly always their bad practice. I was at work and someone said there was like this... Um like an interventional cardiologist and then he ended up getting like a brain cancer brain tumor and he was like you can imagine he's like yeah he worked his whole life doing it and then like yeah no and then i was i was thinking about it so far i'll ask you yeah no no you, you do hear about that all the time but i guess it's as oh, that's a really bad example but i was going to say it's a bit like when a doctor commits suicide it, it 
that the, that we portray it as being very very common, and it is more common than in the natural mm. population. Uh, but it's not an everyday occurrence, thank God. Um, but yeah, we do have higher alcoholism, mm. higher suicide, higher depression in, in medicine. We we know that, and we Absolutely. can accept that and understand that. So you could say that it's akin to that. You know, you you you, you may well have a higher instance of radiation induced problems. Just as you would, mm. you'd be more likely to probably become an alcoholic <laughs> in medicine. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. That, that's, a, that's a nice way to, to put it, and it puts things into context. Um, a few more questions before we let you go. We know you're, you're on call. Tell us a bit more about, is it, is it pronounced Turtle, this, this log book that yeah. you founded? Yeah. Tell us, so I love it when kind of people do side hustles, things outside of general conventional medicine. Tell us how you got off the ground where did the idea come from you know what's tell us a bit more about it so it's pretty much when i became the training program director for ir in the west midlands i used to sit on the arcp panels so the, the annual review of all the doctor all the doc trainees and i would get sick to death of reading through hundreds of different portfolios that were mm. all kept in different ways so people would classify different um things as, as, as different so you almost get an Excel spreadsheet for one person, a PDF as another, a Word document another, and then literally scraps of paper that have been scanned in, uh, you know, handwritten. <laughs> I did an aphrostomy today and a PTC the other day. You're like, my God. So to try and disseminate that and break it down to understand what people were doing and to then c compare them to peers to see what other people had done at that level of training was impossible. So I wanted to standardize it. So selfishly, I used my own logbook that I developed when I was a trainee. Um, mm. And I also looked at lots of other logbooks that colleagues had had, had kept and I kind of distilled them down to all the different procedures in IR the kind of levels of training supervision and things like that and came up with a with a logbook which I then ran through the BSIRT I ran it through my local trainees and I trialed it in the West Midlands amongst my my guys um, and girls and got a lot of feedback edited it and then I presented the idea at uh, the BSIR uh, council so I, I took it to the BSIR and said can I have some money to fund this into a web-based platform uh, and fortunately they did. They gave me a lot of money. Uh, I worked with a digital company to produce the website. Um, mm. And now we have over 300 uh, users of the website uh, oh, wow. internationally, all over the world, um, America, um, Middle East, Australia, and obviously UK. Um, so there are trainees all over the world using this logbook now, which is fantastic. And it just standardizes people's ability mm. to present the data they're doing it, uh, the, the, the procedures they're doing. Um, and yeah, it's been a really good, fun journey. No, oh, definitely. The question is, why? Why? So in medicine, a lot of, there's a lot of problems, right? And not many people go out and find solutions or try to do anything about it. Why did you go and do it? What was your mentality? What was your rationale, right? Because I'm sure other individuals on the panel had the same problem. But what, what made you different to go and do something about it? It's, well, to an extent, it was selfishness because actually... I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna be TPD for a few years, and every time I sit mm. on the same, on the panel, I get the same problem. So it makes my life easier than <laughs> everyone is standardised. So I, maybe it's just being selfish. But I, I, but I, maybe I'd like to think I'm altruistic and think it's good for yeah. everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I get no financial reward out of this at all. You know, this is mm. this is completely free. I get no money out of this at all. It was just purely to have a standardised logbook, which helps my ARCP process. Mm. Um, so. Maybe I'm selfish, but maybe I'm altruistic. I don't know. I'll let you decide. <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah. I think in my head is you saw a problem and you find a way to make it easier and you came up with a solution and implemented it. 
And I think yeah. there are lots of people that would have suffered and they just wouldn't have done anything about it, even from oh, a don't selfish get me wrong. point of view. It, it, almost, I mean, you know, this is why I have no hair. And <laughs> from a bit, you know, I didn't shave this morning. I, I'm grey as well. So if you see a full-headed hair doctor, I guarantee you he isn't doing stuff like this. Um, okay. But the bald grey ones are the idiots like me that take on projects. <laughs> that we're not paid for. It's even the BSIR role that I hold. So I'm the chairman of the mm. British BSIR Membership Rewards Committee. We're, that's again, mm. it's not paid, it's not remunerated, it's in your own time. I had a meeting uh, yesterday, yeah, yesterday morning, for mm. a council meeting. So this is all in your own time, but it, it's to the betterment of the specialty. It's mm. networking with colleagues to understand how things are done differently. Um, it's, uh, we're, we're, at the moment, we're working on a grant scheme for people to, to attend BSIR and we're going to, mm. um, you know, give them educational grants because obviously study, study leave budgets are being squeezed nationally. Mm. So we're going to mm. try and come out, come out with funding to help people attend these conferences. So, yeah, maybe I'm a saint. <laughs> I'm trying to help people. Uh, and I, but my main enthusiasm is, is IR and getting it out, getting it yeah. out there, getting people to understand what mm. it is we do and how we do it um, and getting more trainees into it and enthusing them talk a little bit about the well, log uh, log booking system now i think from the junior end you can get a bit of disgruntled juniors who say ah oh, damn i have to log this and log that tell us a little bit about actually why from the the director end from the more sort of consultant end, why it's important to have a log book because sometimes it just passes us juniors and we think oh actually it is yeah. once you get to that stage it's really important it's really important yeah so um if you ever do have a complication um mm. you know to say that you've done x number it, it really helps i mean I've, i'm very fortunate i've never had a major complication that's ended up with a death or a coroner's case mm. but if you're standing in front of the coroner and you've mm. um, had an unfortunate mistake or complication um if you can say i've done 400 of these and they've all been completely fine and this is just a one-off but you say oh, it's the first time i've ever done it it's a completely different <laughs> of fish and if you've got a logbook that shows you've done twenty thousand operations and only had mm. one or two complications it's a very different mindset and i know we shouldn't live in that society but we, we have to be realistic that litigation is getting worse in the nhs you know mm. um, and we do have to protect ourselves and, and and patients no longer see us as um you know certainly don't see us as gods or anything but they are very happy to complain yeah. um, so we do have to protect ourselves um and and yeah from from complaints and criticisms so mm. having a logbook is it just gives you a bit more um robustness absolutely no, definitely no, absolutely i think it's, it's super important um the final question and i know lots of people will probably be keen to hear is from your experience dealing with trainees and radiology is getting super super competitive um definitely more so it was a few years ago from what we've heard how do people put in a competitive portfolio how do they get onto a training program what are the things you like to see um, and that you would encourage them to do yeah it's a really really good uh, question because re recently the application has changed yeah uh, so the the application that was just in december wasn't it or yeah in december that's mm. opened didn't it was just <laughs> almost unachievable for most people <laughs> yeah <laughs> um we at training level at our, my training level don't have any you know say or anything on that, that that's at that more national level but um in my day um it, it wasn't didn't seem that difficult you did an audit take a taste a week and you you know talk nicely interview but now <laughs> you need to kind of present a national conference run an international <laughs> training program uh, you know it's just bonkers yeah but the, the rationale or the reason behind that is because they can 
So as you just said, the competition is just becoming so incredibly high. They need to find a way to to discriminate people. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, there are crazy people like you that run a national um, podcast, which not many people do. Or there are mm-hmm. crazy people that run a national course. So there are people that have done a PhD. So, mm-hmm. And un- annoyingly, those people will do better on the application because they have done something extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, with no disrespect to you, it makes them better because... Mm-hmm. You know the skills that it might give them certain skills that make them better in one remit, but not in others. Um, mm. But it's just it, it, there has to be some way of discriminating people because ha- how otherwise do you know all the Abduls of the world are the same? Mm. So mm. we, if we want, if I, if I want to put myself into that pool, c- can afford to be picky. Let's say, yeah. Um, mm. Mm. So makes I, sense. I don't fully subscribe to the to the difficultness of it now but i get it because we can afford to be picky yeah a bit like no. australians I, on their visa applications you've got to be under <laughs> yeah. 40 and, you, know, uh, you can they can be picky because everyone wants to go there so they'll make it really yeah. difficult for you yeah exactly i just for, for me i hope there's a better system in the future though because i've seen the general surgeons basically the cst's those guys the number of hoops they have to jump through to get a training number or a core surgical post is incredible. So like as an F1, F2, you have to have completed all these things, as you've said, international conferences and stuff. And there's no real, I think, direct sort of um, link to them being a great future surgeon. Um, But you're right. How else do you separate a thousand people all applying for that one post? And they're all actually great people and great potential surgeons. Um, But I hope someone clever comes up with, with something else that that can sort of predict that better, I guess. I mean, I remember when I applied to medical school back in 1990, something or other. Um, <laughs> um, it was um, actually it wasn't that far ago, was it? Yes, yes, it was 1999. <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. Anyway, um, I remember Nottingham had a psychometric analysis test for medical school, mm. and what I think they were doing as a pilot, whatever they actually looked at, it, I'm not sure, to try and see the type of people applying to medical school and actually whether they predisposed to depression or whatever and mm. or predisposed to high high flying people i don't know they were doing psychometric analysis I, I never saw the results of all of that sort of stuff and i think they kind of got rid of it a few years later but it's the mm. same thing as what you're alluding to does it pre- presenting a national conference or running a national course does that make you a better radiologist or surgeon or gp or whatever or actually does a does a psych does a psychiatrist need to assess you almost to understand <laughs> your whether and I, I suspect probably the latter but then that just opens up a whole new kind of world yeah. <laughs> then discriminating on psychiatric 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 ability so mm. i guess it's a, a, a less um uh, it's, it's a more, maybe it's an easier thing to discriminate on yeah. kind of a, a, a achievement yeah as opposed no. to saying well actually you're crazy you're going to be a surgeon or you're yeah. <laughs> you're very lovely be a dermatologist. i don't know yeah. but, i know it, I suspect there is. I suspect, I suspect if you did the psychometric analysis on all, on all orthopedic surgeons and then on all psychiatrists, I suspect there is mm. some common theme because people do choose. I remember going to medical school with a girl who was very lovely and she wanted to be a geriatric psychiatrist. And I was like, bloody hell, who, who wants to be a oh, geriatric wow. psychiatrist? <laughs> typical, and we do stereotype here, the typical rugby playing lad. And he, you know he's going to be an orthopedic surgeon and, and, and he does become an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. So it's not stereotyping an old wives' tales for no reason. There's probably an element of truth in that. Mm. Um, 
But, yeah. but I don't know if we're ever going to get in a situation where we do psychometric analysis to say you would be really good. You would be really good at, as, as a pathologist because that kind of says, does that mean <laughs> you know I like dead people or whatever you want um, <laughs> into into stereotypes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I yeah I do agree with you. I think the, the the biggest thing, the core is they can ask for it and they know year in year out people will live up to those standards and criteria. And it's, it's a super easy way. You fit it, you're in. You get interview. If not, um, you know you do something else. Um, the so last I do thing, feel for you guys and, yeah. and, and, and everyone applying, I do absolutely appreciate. I would never get into radiology training uh, anymore. <laughs> um, I wouldn't even got to do training because you know nowadays you have to pass your part two A by three ST three and the two B by ST four. Yeah, I, had... I was an ST five and still didn't even have my two A. So you know, I was way <laughs> because I spoke nicely, came across nicely, and a hard worker. I kind of got away with it. Um, it's just mm. not allowed anymore. The system is so stringent that I would have just been kicked out of the scheme uh, at mm. the end of the third year. So you just mentioned something, and, and I think it's important we talk about it. In medicine, to do well and to progress in your career, there are other things that are important. It's not just being kind of book smart and kind of knowing things A to Z. It's the soft skills. Um, tell us a bit more about that, because I think clearly, obviously, due to kind of the nature, people are a bit more disgruntled, people are a bit abrupt and stressed out, but. How important are these soft skills to progress and do well in a career? More important than anything. Because cause I, maybe, I don't know if this view is controversial, but I don't believe you can teach those skills particularly well. Um, I think, <laughs> you know, we try, uh, but some people aren't particularly empathetic. <laughs> or they, 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 they are in their soul and their heart, but they don't come across mm. as it. And, you know, I, I always used to be, I'm probably too old to remember Gordon Brown, but I kind of remember very vivid interview where he'd obviously had an earpiece and he's just a grumpy git and then someone's always <laughs> said smile and he just has this insane grin oh it's just God. not his it's not his thing to smile but his pr person is saying oh you've got to smile you've got to kiss the baby and he'll get the baby and yeah. you know do something inappropriate it's like no, no, yeah. that, he's just not he, that's not his thing but he's being forced mm. to do it so I, i'm not entirely convinced you can force empathy and mm. and the soft skills that we talk about they're actually quite natural um whereas technical skills you can yeah. so i can teach you to to puncture a femoral artery i can teach you to manipulate a catheter into a liver but i can't teach you but well, i can i can try to empathize when that patient has a complication to avoid mm -hmm. the confrontation with the family when they're bleeding out you know those skills are don't come across very often when they do that's when you step up to the plate and earn your stripes as a as a doctor or as a consultant yeah. um you know most of the things that we stereotype doctors as being able to do, um, anyone can do with yeah. a bit of training. But actually, mm. where we really earn our, our big bucks is the communication. Yeah. Uh, you know, nine, I'm, not, I'm not sure about the stats, but a hell of a lot of complaints are purely down to communication. And if you talk to your patients and their families well and get their rapport, this is why I do a clinic. You know, I, I wouldn't ever embolize someone's uterus without seeing them in clinic because yeah. there are serious complications in these are young, fil um, uh, healthy, fit women in their 40s and if you screw up them they are going to sue you yeah whereas if you've explained their complications you've got a rapport with them they trust you you are doing absolutely your best and if something goes wrong my god i'm so sorry they will not suit you as quickly maybe but they were because they understand that that's you've ex you've counseled them and they they trust you and you've done your best and they they know you have whereas if mm. you've just been flippant um and walked in and, and you know and, and they then you're in a whole heap of problems um, and I think the stat was 70%. 70% of all powers, complaints and stuff is, is due to communication. 
Um, and you see when that I had, I was, in, I was in stereotypical specialties where, uh, let's say, th- uh, th- some surgeons are very good at operating, but maybe not good at communicating. <laughs> What's annoying is, would, what would you want? Would you want the really gifted technical surgeon who can't talk? Or do you want the really good gift of the gab who's actually really rubbish with a knife? It's really <laughs> difficult because annoyingly, you'll trust the guy that talks nicely, even though he's terrible a surgeon. Whereas the, the guy that's stereotypical ass is actually a really bloody good surgeon. He just doesn't talk very nicely. And, 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 and there's got to be a happy medium. And hopefully yeah. we all want to do that. I know, definitely. Um, but, Neil, I think we are, we've taken up enough of your time. Um, we want to thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us, sharing about your journey, your day-to-day life, the, you know, the stuff that you've been involved in. Um, a massive thank you uh, for taking the time out to, to come onto the show. We really appreciate it. No worries at all. Thanks, thanks for your time. And uh, yeah, I think um, IR is, is there's a lot more information out there about what exactly we do and how we do it. Um, and I think, you know, BSIRT, IR Juniors are doing a great job in, in advertising what we do and particularly at kind of foundation level and, and, and trying to engage with medical students about the nitty gritties. And I'm, I'm actually running a, um, a, a conference in, a, in, a, in the 3rd of March uh, here in Coventry about what IR is and everything. Um, so I think, yeah watch this space for IR. Absolutely. We'll be sure to no, definitely, definitely post this and get it out there, uh, especially your conference as well. So yeah, thank you so much, Neil, for your time. Thank you so much.